From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with Tim Guthrie, artist, filmmaker. He really does everything, and he's also a professor at Creighton University. I have a tendency to change medium and style based on the concept that I'm working on. I did a show called uh, Nuclear Dichotomies, and that felt like, oh, I need to do video, and I need to have photography of the thing. I needed to create this scale on the ground so people could understand how big some of these bombs were compared to other ones. And then when I did an extraordinary rendition, it started off as a really stupid pun, by the way, I thought, well, I'll do these extraordinary renditions of these portraits kind of like Kent Bellows would do. And then I realized like halfway there, I thought, I don't know how he had that patience. I don't have that patience. (laughs) We're talking about how do you channel your anxieties, your grief into art? What does it look like? What's the right medium? How far can you go with it? Stay tuned for the conversation after this break. We have a lot of hours of content here on Riverside Chats now. Our backlog has over 100 episodes. We're expanding into live events, and we have an exciting future for the show that we hope to be able to get to you. To make the show as good as it can be and to continue to give you the kinds of conversations that you listen for, the reason why you subscribed in the first place, to hear coverage of arts, ideas, politics, whatever it is that brings you here every time, please consider becoming a supporter of the show by making a sustaining monthly donation of $1, $5, whatever you can afford, and really whatever you think the show is worth, which maybe is zero. In which case, ouch, but okay. If you are interested in becoming a supporter, please look in the podcast notes. There should be a link in there that you can find that gives you all the information you need. Otherwise, thank you for considering supporting the show, and more more importantly, thank you for listening. Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Tim Guthrie is a visual artist, art professor at Creighton, and an award-winning filmmaker. His work has been compiled in collections like the Boise Art Museum, the Paris Gibson Square Museum of Art, the Plemons Collection of Contemporary Art, and many, many more. His documentary, Missing Peace, chronicles his own grieving process after the death of his wife, and that garnered significant attention and awards across the globe. He's the kind of guy who I could just list so many more skills and achievements and pieces of art that he's done and never really get to the interview where he gets to talk about them. So let's just let him do some of the talking here. Here's my conversation with Tim Guthrie. All right, so you're ambidextrous? <laughs> um, not in all things, no. What are you ambidextrous but, in? So this is actually a story about – I was um, at an artist residency in upstate New York and I didn't even think that I did this. It didn't seem unusual to me at the time. But there was a person who had a studio next to mine. And uh, we would, like, leave things in each other's studios to kind of – not to freak each other, but just to, just to, you know, surprise each other. And uh, I was just working away in my studio. My door was open. And as I'm working, I hear this, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> and I look back, like, what, what? Did I leave something weird in her studio? Did I – did I was something inappropriate? And then um, she made a comment. She says, you're painting with both hands. And I kind of forgot that I do that. I don't do it all the time. But um, And to make it worse, there are times where I'll have five paintbrushes in one hand sticking out like a claw. And then the other one that I'm actually using. So one will be a blender and I'll paint with one hand and then blend with the other hand. And then I'll, and I'll just kind of swap back and forth. And, and I'll also, and I think I was doing this at the same time, was I'll take two paintbrushes, tape them together the opposite direction. So I can just spin it around real fast and switch from one to another. So if I'm using a cool color or a warm color, I just flip the brush really fast. There's a lot of innovation happening there. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, I just kind of have a, ten- a tendency to attack the canvas with both hands. Well, so, I mean, do you have a similar level of skill with just painting with both hands? 
No, I don't know how it started. I, you know, I'm generally right-handed. You know, I play racquetball with my right hand, you know, things like that. I write with my right hand. But for some reason, when I paint and some of the, you know, like sculpting, nobody questions that when you sculpt with both hands. That's true. But yet, when I was painting, and again, I didn't even realize I was doing it until somebody pointed it out to me. I, I mean, I probably did, but I just didn't think about it very much. Um, it was just quick to have a dry brush in one hand and a wet brush in another hand, and I would just go back and forth between them. So, so it was something you learned how to handle and kind of juggle both. I, I really don't know when I started it. I just I, seriously, I just found them. I know when I started putting multiple brushes in one hand because I remember thinking how funny that was to have the I would, like I'd hold two brushes yeah. at first, and then I thought, oh, I've got you know all these notches between my fingers. I can put a brush in between every one of those. And originally, it was so I could just grab the brush. It was handy. I could mm-hmm. just reach over and boom, it was there. Uh, reach over with my right hand and grab it out of my left hand. But then I realized oh, I can just paint with both hands. I don't need to switch brushes. I mean, that's impressive, though. Really? Not really. It's I mean, just, I like I said, I, I mean, if you're sculpting with two hands, I think of all the different things you would do with two hands, it's just probably unusual that somebody paints with both hands. So. Sure. Sculpture is something where I uh, I feel like, you know, with, with an image or with, a, you know, some kind of moving art like movies – we all kind of have a baseline of whatever you need to process it, to react to it. Like I know how to watch it, and it's easier to re- sort of refine my reaction to it. Sculpture, sometimes it's harder for me to know what to do with it. I mean, how, oh. how did you like, – do you remember when you first were moved by a piece of sculpture? I was first moved by one. Um, I was probably one of the – it's going to seem like such a lame answer, but um, you know, looking at Michelangelo's sure. sculptures, or Bernini, his sculptures, they're just amazing. In fact, I got a chance to travel to uh, Rome when I was younger and, and traveled around Italy, and I remember running into Bernini's sculptures for the first time in person. I was just like, oh, wow, <laughs> like I could never do that. Um, but that's not how I sculpt. I, I Supposedly, I'm a sculptor at times, but I don't actually. So I'm using air quotes. People can't see me making yeah, a <laughs> little vocal <laughs> intonation for the. <laughs> to this, um, but uh, I kind of, I'll do woodworking. I'll cut things with a saw, and then I'll glue things back together, and then I'll kind of sculpt with clay, and then I'll. It's, it's just kind of whatever makes sense for what I'm building. It just happens to be in 3D. Yeah. And there were often interactive sculptures, and I never thought of them as sculptures until people started telling me they were sculptures. I was just making yeah. stuff. Right. Yeah. Well, so again, you're kind of like, well, it's just like with your hand. Like, oh, I'm just going to kind of put the the brush here, and then I'm going to actually just start doing it. And then mm-hmm. sculpturing, sculpting was kind of like that as well, it sounds like for you. Yeah. I think well, one thing that's been consistent about my work for quite a while is I have a tendency to change medium and style based on the concept that I'm working on. Mm -hmm. So I'll throw away a whole series of things just to change to whatever because of that particular concept. I did a show called uh, Nuclear Dichotomies and that, you know, felt like, oh, I need to do video and I need to have photography of the the thing. I needed to create this scale on the ground so people could understand how big some of these bombs were compared to other ones. And then when I did an extraordinary rendition, it started off as a really stupid pun, by the way. I thought, well, I'll do these extraordinary renditions of these portraits kind of like Kent Bellows would do. And then I realized I get halfway there. I thought, oh, I, that's, I don't know how he had that patience. I don't have that patience. <laughs> but I would just kind of halfway do um, what I originally had conceived of. Um, but I'm, you know, I don't draw that often or I didn't used to. So I brought all that back for after two decades of not really doing any kind of drawing because that's what that specific show called for. I was curious just mm-hmm. looking through your body of work in the various different modes that you seem drawn to, if that comes from like a fearlessness 
that you can figure out all of the like you know someone who's never shot anything on film before and never made a made a video project right not everyone knows how to do that or even thinks that they can figure out how to do it i guess my question is is it kind of this fearlessness this confidence in your ability to figure it out or is it some degree of boredom where you're sort of like i have figured this out and i want the challenge of not quite knowing what i'm doing next I'm going to say it's fearlessness. I'm just a totally <laughs> fearless person who – no, I love that that's the way to think about it. But unfortunately for me, no, that's not the case at all. I I had a friend who once said, we kind of have a creative ADHD. You get really bored very quickly with things. I started off drawing and then I got into painting and then it just kind of moved from one thing to the other. And uh, painting was interesting at first because there was a lot of creative problem solving. Simple things like, you know, what happens when you mix yellow and blue? Oh, you get green. Oh, and then what happens when you mix a more transparent paint with a more opaque paint and all of that kind of stuff. And once the creative problem solving disappeared, I disappeared, it felt like I was just mushing things around with a brush. It got really boring. Mm -hmm. Um, I wasn't, I would work on a painting and my mind wouldn't even be in the studio. I'd be thinking about anything else but the painting. And I realized, okay, that's kind of a problem. That's, you know, if it's going to be that boring, why do I, why am I still doing it? Yeah. I'd find, you know, 3D printing was started to become a thing. I built my own 3D printer. I thought, oh, cool, let's figure this out. And then that became big. And I'm like, okay, well, that was fun. But, you know, what else can I do? <laughs> I just it's addictive, move. right? To not quite know, know, to not know exactly how to make something work and to have to figure it out. Kind of, yeah. If, you know, like when you were a kid, you know, pulling things apart, was it was fun because you got to put it back together and you got to learn how it worked. But, um, but yeah, I think pretty much that creative problem. So it, was, it was just fun to learn how to do something. Yeah. And once I kind of understood it, then I would often just move on to something else. I can remember when I was in college and somebody said, yeah, you're going to be one of those people that's a jack of all traits and a master of none. You know, it always sounds like an insult when somebody says it. And, yeah. I, and I always think to myself – does it matter that you can do a lot of things? Why Why should I be focused on just one thing? I would just get bored to tears. In fact, I remember working on some projects where I would force myself to keep doing it and keep doing it um, just to see how far I could push it. And, um, yeah, it was just always a dead end to me. I just I just got bored. Yeah. Were you, I mean, were you easily bored as a kid? <laughs> You'd have to ask my parents, I guess. Um, maybe. Um, I don't know if I it's, – it's weird that I'm using the word bored. It's probably more – because I had such a curious mind as a kid that when that curiosity didn't feel up front, mm. then I just lost interest. So it's, like it wasn't, a, it's like a seven-year itch for art. <laughs> something like that. I remember being on somebody's uh, a program. This was years ago. Amy Mathers. Um, Amy Mathers, excuse me. She had the show called uh, Whatever Mathers. That's where the S comes from. <laughs> and uh, she had a, a couple of uh, – three of us on. And one person was talking about their creative process. And it was like a branding, basically. You did something until people could recognize it. And once they could recognize it, then they wanted to invest in your stuff because they knew it was yours. And then the next person, it was actually, well, I might as well give shout outs. Steve, sure. Steve Gordon, um, an amazing designer in town. And Megan Hunt, actually, back when she was, um, when she wrote her book and she was doing that kind of work. And same kind of thing. Always, oh, you know, this process that you'd create a certain type of work and then people would recognize it and they'd come to you for that. <clears throat> and then they came to me and I... Um, talked about how he'd work on a series um, like the Nuclear Dichotomy Show or the um, Extraordinary Rendition, any of those. And once I kind of felt like I create this, created this um, large installation that explored the concept, then I just thought, all right, well, I kind of got that. And then I'd throw all of that aside and start over from scratch on a whole new concept, whole new work, whole new – I would not keep that um, going because I knew I would have gotten bored with it. It would have been, again, kind of a dead end for me. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Tim Guthrie, artist, filmmaker, and professor at Creighton University. 
What art excites you in Omaha these days? Join the conversation on social media or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089, which we may play in one of our upcoming shows. That could be kind of a, a lucrative strategy, though, to turn yourself into a, a recognizable brand, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, no, no. What what they're doing, yeah, right. it's a yeah. smart thing to do. I thought you meant what I was doing. No, what I was doing is like, dumb. <laughs> this is not, not people, a good path for, for making money. People were saying, no, 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 no. Keep, keep with it. Stay. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I, I heard that a lot. Um, so, yeah, no, what Steve was talking about, what Megan was talking about, those are smart ways to go, right? Like, when I talk to students about that, I'd say, you know, you, you get that kind of recognizable um, brand or whatever, people are going to come to you for more of that because they know that's what you're good at. Um, I just didn't care if people Why liked not? what I was doing or I just, I liked uh, kind of back to what I was saying before. I don't want to sound like a broken record, but I, I just like the creative problem solving and I didn't care about a brand. I didn't care about making money. It's one of the reasons that I decided to get a master's and go into teaching. I knew I'd have three or four months off a year. I could make whatever I wanted to, and I never had to wor worry about making a dime. I was always afraid that if I and, – and by the way, th th this is not some lofty concept. It's like, oh, I don't – people shouldn't sell their work. No, sell it. Make money. Do – you know, that's all great. That's fantastic. It was just not my goal. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? There's, yeah. not ever, there's never been times where you're sort of like, maybe I should just do the brand thing. And No, I think – I'm really sincere when I say this. I don't know where it comes from and I don't know why it is. But, for example, when I was painting, I remember I've got a painting that's actually in a book at the Louvre in Paris. And it's the only place you can find this reference is in this. And it's in French. I couldn't even read the, the damn book. <laughs> um, I remember when I was being asked to paint portraits. I was doing portraits of um, then uh, Governor Johans and, and people like that, making good money. I made better money doing those you know, nice portraits of rich people than anything else. But it bored the <laughs> crap out of me. I just did not I, – I didn't see a reason to keep doing it just for the money. It didn't make sense to me. I, I had a job. I had a, a way to you know make ends meet. So I didn't need to do that with art. What was the first art that you started to hone in on as a craft? I think it's going to sound silly, but it, that was back when I was a kid. And yeah. it was just drawing. And it's I got into art for the lamest reasons anybody could get into art. I was drawing. I was good at it. And people would say, oh, wow, you're really good. And I'm like, yeah, I am. I'm going to do more of this. This is fun. Just there was nothing really to it. There was no lofty goal. There was no – I wasn't thinking conceptually when I was at that age. I was just – I just I was good at it. So I kept doing it. What were, you, what were you doodling or drawing at that point? Oh, my God. I was drawing everything. Actually, doodling is a good word for it. I would doodle all the time. That's kind of what started um, me in that path. But then when I started drawing other things, I can't believe I'm, I actually have a picture of this somewhere. I got to see if I could find it. I remember when I was really young and drew a picture of um, C-3PO and R2-D2. And, uh, and it's very realistic. For me at the time, it was more realistic than anything I'd ever done. And everybody just thought it was amazing. Oh, it looks like a photograph. And that's what everybody would always say. It looks like a photograph. Um, and it didn't take me – it took me a, a while, actually, I should say, to realize, well, why am I doing something if it just looks like a photograph? Why not just yeah. show the photograph? And so I actually early on started struggling with that, trying to figure out, all right, so what is art then? I mean, I don't want it to just look like a photo, so what do I want? And and I, by the way, I also vacillate back and forth between doing things that are realistic and doing things that are very abstract, doing things that are really conceptual, doing things that are incredibly juvenile, <laughs> and then doing things that are much more um, – sophisticated in that concept. Um, so when you say you're struggling with that concept of what is art, like how old are you when you start to conceptualize what that means? Well, I mean, so you got to 
you know, put your mind in that, the, that you know, 10-year-old mindset or whatever. So, I mean, as a 10-year-old, I was thinking about it, but I wasn't thinking about it in those kind of high art with a capital A sure. <laughs> ways. I was just realized, huh, you know, why do people keep saying it looks like a photograph? And what does that mean? Does that mean it's boring? Does that mean it's good, but yeah. what? And, and it took me a while to kind of figure that out. And and that's probably actually when I started playing around with lots of different things. I started drawing in color, and then I started painting, and then I started – I kept trying to figure out all these different things. So it was like I, a little identity crisis you were having <laughs> at 10. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> um, yeah, and I remember my mom uh, putting me in this private painting class once. It was at Mangelson's. It was kind of like in the back the back of Mangelson. This little old lady taught it, and she was great. But um, that was the first time that I really realized, hey, there's a lot more than what I'm doing. I'd never painted, there were acrylics at the time, but I'd never painted with acrylics or done anything like that. And and once I started getting into different media that could do more than I could with just a pencil, I mean, that's, I think that's when my interest started to really grow. And at that point, were you thinking like, this is what I want to do? This is who <laughs> I want to be? No, I mean, there was probably a part of me that thought, oh, I want to be an artist when I grow up, but not as like a career. Just yeah. It just was fun to do. And in fact, I remember when I went to college or even when I was in high school, considering going to college, I thought, oh, man, not art. That's just a goofy hobby. What do I actually want to do? How do I want to make money? How do I want to, you know, whatever? There's got to be a career. Um, but my dad would say, you know, whatever you do when you're declaring a major, deciding what kind of classes to take, make sure you enjoy what you're doing because you can pursue something because you think you're going to make good money at it, but you might just hate life. Yeah. If you find something you really enjoy, you're going to find a way to make money at it. Did, you, did nice your dad op- hate his job? <laughs> no, he was a he was actually a journalist early on and a journalistic photographer. I don't know if he'd call himself a photojournalist, but he was doing um, a lot of that, but mainly writing. And he did that for a while, and then he kind of get into PR. So he started doing public relations for uh, Boys Town, and so he switched careers and things. But I think he pretty much enjoyed everything he was doing, and he he did PR for quite a while. I would imagine his photographic eye and some of that methodology probably was soaked into. Uh, you know, your your relationship to visual art in general, right? Maybe, but I never really saw any of his photographs when I was younger. I didn't really? even know he was a photographer the longest time. I knew him as a writer. He would talk about writing all the time and editing and, mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. Um, I still don't know if I can really describe much in the way of this. I mean, I know the fun photographs that he would take on vacation and bring home because we go camping a lot or, you know, things like that. So I knew that he was good and I knew he, we could get into a dark room, which I was anxious to do. The first time I got a chance to do that, I Immediately, I mean, I was really young when I did that, um, but yeah, I, I didn't. As as a child, I didn't think of him as a photojournalist. So, was writing a craft that you were able to sort of relate to then, like his I, what he was bringing into that, and how he's able to go from an idea or a feeling to sort of like how do I actually make that work just from words? I imagine again, there's some overlap there. Yeah, well, on that on that creative side, he was. Um, <laughs> I sucked as a writer, at, at least at that age. Um, and he would just, not in a mean way, he'd pull out the red pan and just mark it up. Don't use this word. Why are you saying that? You know, prove. What does this even mean? What do you mean most people? What do you mean? You know, he'd just kind of go through these things, but in a, a, you know, a kind way, not in a mean way. But it would be very critical in a way that made me realize um, there was a lot more than I thought to something as simple as writing. Or at the time, I thought it was simple. Now mm-hmm. I realize it's a lot of work. <laughs> but as a kid, I thought, oh, you just write things down. And it was the same thing with art. Oh, you just scribble something and you're done. And then I realized, well, anybody can do that. So what? how can I make it unique for me? What are? How can I 
come up this makes it sound so intentional and it really wasn't intentional it was more intuitive I was trying to think of something that made it more interesting to me but I wasn't trying to be super unique or whatever I just I just knew that there was more to it than I was getting out of it at first in Omaha there's not a ton of obvious examples or role models I would think for the kind of art that you were gravitating toward so uh, like when you're trying to think of like all right how do I make this passion into a career of some sort? How do you even start to conceptualize what that might look like or how you can do it? I, I don't think I ever really thought of art as a career. The only time it even came close to that was when I realized, you know, my dad would hire people as graphic designers for projects. And I thought, oh, graphic design, maybe that's the thing. But then I got bored with that too. <laughs> and it, it um, art really was kind of a hobby that I really wasn't thinking about a career. I wasn't thinking about making money. I wasn't thinking about, um, like I said, in any intentional way of turning into a certain type of artist. I wasn't looking toward any artist and thinking, oh, I want to emulate this person or that person. I was just making. <laughs> it was just fun to make stuff. Um, that's all I was thinking back then. It was just fun to make stuff. So did, make something from nothing. <laughs> do you remember the first thing that you made that you were really proud of after the uh, R2-D2 C-3PO? <laughs> I don't know. That was a pretty high bar <laughs> I set for myself there. Um, it's not a simple thing for me to answer because there wasn't one thing. There wasn't an artist that I really admired. There wasn't a medium that I liked more than other media. There wasn't a style of art that I liked more than other styles of art. I, I, I suppose when I was young, I gravitated more toward realism because it seemed like a challenge. Yeah, that, seem, um, that seems to that, me what you like and what you gravitate toward is challenges. Yeah, no, that's true. <laughs> so, yeah, I think almost everything that I've done – um, I, I kind of word it this way with my students. So every once in a while I'll run into somebody and they'll say they don't want to work on something where somebody limits their creativity. That's the way they would put it. Like somebody puts up a barrier and, and that kind of ruins their creativity. And to me, I've always felt the opposite. If somebody puts a barrier up, I've got to figure out a way to get around that or over it. Right. If you take away one of the tools that I've got, then I have to figure out a, a different way to you know do the same task or whatever. So to me, that is creativity. And that's you know, I remember Steve Gordon talking about this once where, you know, when there were cavemen, you know, it was raining and you moved into a cave to protect yourself from the rain. And then you wanted to eat something. You had to figure out how to cook it. And everything was a creative process. Just living is a creative process, trying to figure out how to solve any of the problems that you might run into. Your car breaks down and you got to figure out how to get your car. Any of these things are all creative problem solving. And I'm, I think I just used that kind of thinking whenever I would do something with art. No limitations. That's got to be very difficult because you have no excuses then for when it turns out <laughs> not exactly like it was in your head. Right. And it's not perfect. You're like, well, you had every possible uh, avenue. You had every possible resource. And this is what you came up with. And I think that that happens to a lot of people. I see it with students all the time. It's like going to a restaurant, you're really hungry, and the menu is just full of all these amazing things. And you can't decide what to order because you just want everything. Um um, so, yeah, I think there's a little bit of that, but I think and, – and this is – I'm not special, by the way, in saying this, but I don't think I do that very often. I think I'm able to direct um, what I want to do. You know, I, I figure out the concept. I figure out what it is that I want to approach. I feel like I need to talk about a specific thing. It would be easier. So Extraordinary Rendition, for an example, it was actually about the United States practice of Extraordinary Rendition. and. And then as I thought of that, I thought, all right, so what medium should I use um, 
to do this? And then how can I, because the show is actually kind of tricking people to come to think they were seeing a show, but it was actually about surveillance and terrorism and a whole bunch of other things. And so they'd come to see drawings, but the drawings actually had cameras on them and they were recording everything that was happening in the room and it was all being fed back to a hard drive and there were people monitoring you on these screens. And so there's all this crazy stuff that was happening, but it started with the idea of what is extraordinary rendition? Why are we doing it? And is it a good thing? There were actually two parts to the show. There's kind of this propaganda side. I brought this guy as a designer in town, Justin Kemmerling, who's amazing. And I remember telling Justin, I'm like, I want a propaganda side and I want a fact-based side. So we're going to have real information that you would get from the CIA. I mean, actual published stuff. So we'd know what was actually happening. Turned out there was a lot more happening than we ever discovered <laughs> that came out over the years. Um, but he came up with this great propaganda side. But all of those things, the, the graphic design, the the use of computers and, and video. The, um, Doug Hako uh, was somebody who um, was interested in extraordinary rendition at the same time. We always talk about this, and I can never, neither one of us remember who connected us, but somebody said something to one of us and said, oh, well, I remember somebody saying something to me. I just don't remember who it was. <laughs> said, oh, Doug Hako, do you know this guy? And I didn't know him at the time. He's interested in extraordinary rendition. So we got together. We met and said, what are you doing? And then we decided to do the show together. And the fact that there was performance really did come from Doug, but I incorporated it because it made sense. And But all of the choices of, of again, medium and the style and the graphics and everything, it, was, it all had a purpose. It all worked toward that goal. I'm talking with Tim Guthrie, artist, filmmaker, and professor at Creighton University. Let us know what you think. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And stay tuned for the rest of the conversation after this break. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and you can check out the backlog of Riverside Chats episodes wherever you get podcasts. While you're there, we'd love it if you'd give us a review. Today I'm talking with Tim Guthrie, artist, filmmaker, professor, and so much more. Here's the rest of our conversation. So, okay, let's let's use that one as an example because you've got kind of a kind of a message there, right? Which mm-hmm. is this is bad, and you should care about it, right? <laughs> well, so I always try to be careful. I hope it doesn't come off as this is bad, and you should care about it. Hopefully, um, people actually now I feel like I need to go back to nuclear dichotomies. Hopefully, people are gaining an understanding of what's happening, and that that would actually be the goal. But okay. So not telling them it's good or bad, but hey, this is what's happening. And of course, to me, yes, you're right. I mean, I think it's a horrible thing because especially if you understand extraordinary rendition, we you know grab somebody, we take them in another country, and we give them to another country because they don't torture, or because we don't torture. Right. Excuse me, yeah. and they can do whatever. But that person's usually killed in these. Th- so. <laughs> rendition this not doesn't end well for whoever we're targeting. In fact, the show was set up this way to make people scared and nervous. They weren't really scared, but it was made them nervous. You walk up to the show and you're immediately interrogated before you can even get through the door. You go to the bar and somebody's throwing pills in your drink and you're like, what the hell was that? <laughs> and then you're trying to get back into the gallery and people are photographing you and and uh, stamping your hand and, and <laughs> it's just tried to put everybody on their heels before they even got into the yeah. exhibition. But because... I wanted people to feel that um, worry, that concern or whatever. It's, of course, once they got into the show, they thought, okay, I'm in the show. And they start forgetting about some of that and they're just looking at the drawings and they don't realize their every action that they're doing is being recorded. So, um, But it's not that they think, okay, I understand what this is now and it's bad because Tim Guthrie said it's bad. It's, <laughs> it's because you're, you're giving them a, a sense of empathy 
And then they now look at it a little bit differently because you've put the some simulacrum of it into mm-hmm. their brains now. Right. And yeah, and, and obviously, I mean, I'm manipulating things quite a bit. So having, you know, Justin telling him, I want a propaganda side as you walk in. So you think, oh, this is a good thing. And hey, we, you know, we got cheeseburgers and cheap gas and, you know, whatever. And then you get into the back room and suddenly there's all this information that tells you, hey, no, this is what it actually is. This is what's happening. These are the countries that are involved, all of that kind of stuff. I'm not using, I don't know, maybe I am. Maybe I just never put it this way. I don't mean to use shows to educate people, but I guess that's kind of what's happening. Like with the nuclear dichotomy show, I had a whole bunch of cranes hanging from the ceiling and each one of those cranes represented one nuclear test that the United States had done. And there were 1,054 cranes hanging to, um, to symbolize each nuclear explosion that we've detonated. Um, so it was a nice visual to understand. And then the scale that went out into, into Omaha, basically it was, it was in what was that at the time called the Bemis underground. And I was, explain it this way. It's it's a horrible way to do it. Or not horrible way. It's not a fair way to do it. I should say it that way. But it was a simple way. I could take one kiloton of explosive power and convert it to one foot. So there was a projection screen where all the explosions were happening. Real explosions. I, had, I got things. In fact, at the time, it was hard to get some of this footage. I was getting it from um, the government and I was digitizing it for them. I would get tapes and things like that. And then, so I was, I had access to some things that you didn't see online for a while. In fact, I wonder how many of them might be mine. But, um, so anyway, you'd see the projection screen and then you'd see all these, uh, markers that came up one foot, two foot, etc. So Hiroshima would be 15 feet from the wall, 15 kiloton explosion. Um, Nagasaki, 21 feet, 21 kiloton. Same with the Trinity explosion. So then most people would think about atomic bombs as, 15 uh, kilotons, that's what a nuclear explosion is. So 15 feet. Well, the largest one, I mean, I was worked for a land surveying firm. So we went out and actually plotted all these points. And we had geocachers. We gave them enough things so they could go locate these things. But the largest one was five miles from the wall, which gave a really clear understanding of just how different these bombs were, the hydrogen bombs, et cetera. Um, Although, I mean, I could go off for a while. Sometimes I'll go off on this. They, they realized that actually those explosions were so big that it bounced off the earth really fast into the atmosphere. So the new concept is actually carpet bombing a city with Hiroshima-style bombs, Hiroshima-sized bombs, which is insane to think of carpet bombing something with atomic bombs. But that's what they learned. Oh, okay, now this is the way we can really cause lots of destruction. Really weird to start thinking about this with everything that's going on in the world right now, but... But yeah, I mean, like I said, kind of educates people, but it's not. It sounds like it's you're, you're processing your own reaction to these ideas and these facts, which horrify you, it sounds like. <laughs> and then you're able to sort of create your emotional response through art so other people feel it in some way. Is that yeah, fair? It's it's fair. Again, it, I mean, obviously a lot of the things I'm doing are extraordinarily intentional, right? Um, but some of the things are kind of accidental. When I first started doing Extraordinary Rendition, the very first – I don't even know if I can call it an exhibit. It was an exhibition technically, but it was um, small. There were only a couple drawings that were finished. Um, I had one video. I just had a handful of things, and it was in uh, Reno, Nevada is where the first one happened. And because there was so little to the show at that point, I created an artist statement, which artists hate to make. But sometimes you just really have to have one to kind of give it some context. So people were looking at the show. They thought, oh, we love this. This is great. This is interesting. Oh, it looks like a photograph. <laughs> and then um, one guy at the end, he um, saw the show and then he read the statement and he walked up to me angry. I mean, not just kind of upset. He was angry. 
And he said, that's my granddaughter over there. You're telling us or you're trying to convince her that our government is doing X, Y, and Z. And I'm looking and I'm thinking, well, but we are. <laughs> but I was being very patient and very kind with him. It didn't matter how much he raised his voice. It was lucky for me because rather than getting defensive, I was actually kind of curious. I'm like, well, this is weird. This is why is he so upset? And so I was trying to explore and, I, and I'd ask him things and say, oh, you're near, you're against the military. I'm like, no, my brother served until he retired. My, my dad served. I, I, I was best man at my best friend's wedding. He served. I, you know, I got a lot of friends that, that has nothing to do with that. It's, this is about a very specific thing. And um, anyway, he just he got really upset, but in a productive way because he kept saying, prove it to me. Show me where. How, how do you know this? Why do you think you know, I, I, that's not true? You, you proved to me it's true. And the more I thought about it, I, th I thought I, all my friends were like, wow, that guy was a jerk. You know, you don't need to do that. But in my mind, I kept thinking, huh, that's a good idea. I should, you know, let people see where does this information come from? How do I know this? How, would, how can they research it themselves? And that's where the whole propaganda and fact-based side, where the, I mean, they're pamphlets. You could take these pamphlets home with you and read through, you know, 20 pages of stuff, and it would have the URLs that you could go to to find some of the information. Um, yeah, I'm going off on another tangent, no, but, but it was, it was interesting to me to, to be not cornered, but to be pushed in a way to consider doing something with the show that I hadn't originally considered until I got that reaction. I think it's interesting too because I don't know how much text uh, has the capacity to impact people the way that something visual or immersive can. And it makes me think back to your dad, the journalist, right, mm -hmm. which I assume some of your uh, your political awakening or just your, your capacity for – criticizing the government in certain situations. Uh, that probably comes from a little bit of that journalistic instinct, right? And then, but you don't do it through text directly. Oh, actually, I use a lot of text. So not, that's, that's but, actually kind of the interesting thing. And I think that may have also come from him because, because uh, say, what he would report on would be some more small town things, et cetera. He wasn't, he liked to say, when I was younger at least, you know, oh, I, you know, I don't vote for politicians, just encourages them, you know, the, those kind of jokes and things like that. Um, so there wasn't a lot of politics when I was younger. We just kind of didn't talk about those kind of things. And then as um, I started getting more angry, probably with uh, climate change was the first thing that really started motivating me. But then I started wondering about all these different things that were happening. In fact, the, um, the last installation type show that I did was called the Museum of Alternative History. And that one, Extraordinary Edition, um, these shows, had they were text heavy. Um, sometimes they were very concentrated, like I said, in a booklet or things like that, or in the case of the Museum of Alternative History, large plaques that were all over the place. It was kind of meant to mimic a natural history museum. And you know, when you walk in a natural history museum, you're learning by reading about things at the same time that you're looking at them. And I really liked that balance of the visuals and getting as much content as you want based on the amount of time you're willing to put into it to understand it. So you can just walk through the show and just look at the pretty pictures of the drawings of these people that are blindfolded and you don't know why and walk out and, okay, you got what you wanted to out of the show. But other people would look and they'd read a little bit more and, and maybe some of them would actually. I have no idea if anybody did this. Go back. Oh, I actually have a funny story about this. <laughs> Go back and actually hop on the web and research this and think, all right, what was this website that they used? Um, there actually was um, an extraordinary rendition website. <laughs> And I wanted it to have the propaganda side and the fact side. So it starts off with, you know, wee, this is a good thing and it's all colorful things and whatever. But I put little pop-up windows, like downloading hard drive. You know, blah, blah, blah. 
<laughs> and it would freak people out. And they were supposed to click on it to make it stop. And that would take you inside the website to find all. I had a thing that kind of showed how long people stayed on the website, how people got so freaked out they would not spend any time inside the main part of the exhibit. They would just leave. I would tell people after they told me they got freaked out. It was downloading my hard drive. I'm like, no, it wasn't. I was just a, <laughs> and then I would tell them, it's all a joke. It doesn't happen. Nothing's being recorded. Nothing's being downloaded. They still wouldn't go back and visit it. They still refused her. They're like, yeah, I don't trust her. <laughs> Maybe it's because it's me. <laughs> they didn't trust me. Who knows? But yeah, the text to me um, allowed me to do more. It was kind of like when I got into sculpture. When I was doing painting, everything had to be on the surface. Mm -hmm. So I would do these portraits of people, and then I would have to kind of code things or hide them within the visuals of the painting, and you're supposed to decipher them. That was very limiting to do that on a two-dimensional surface. Once I had sculpture and you could interact, you could open a drawer, you could, you know, squeeze this thing and pull it out of the, you know, whatever. All of those things, that interaction would allow me to hide things and reveal things based on how much time the person spent with the artwork, yeah. which led to text, which led to intera oh, the interaction, obviously. But yeah. Well, I think you, you understand, though, that like I'm skeptical that journalism, classical journalism, written text – can really impact people, can immerse them. They almost need to have that, those other elements, right? So for you, the text is a way to uh, add to the experience, but you have to draw them in to get them to want to read it. Sadly, I'm, I'm, I like the way you word a lot of things because it always sounds like I'm more noble than I am. I'm more of a <laughs> than anything. <laughs> so like with the Museum of Alternative History, I was using text to confuse people and then hopefully get them to a point where they were trying to think very critical about something. Mm -hmm. um, and we would do presentations. It was at Coneco, the second version of the show. The first one was at the um, RNG Gallery in um, Council Bluffs, and then the, the big one was at Coneco. And <laughs> you would walk into the show and assume, like I said, you're kind of at a natural history museum or whatever. And then as you started reading things, you had to start thinking critically. The show was really about cognitive dissonance, confirmation bias, that kind of stuff. But if you weren't really thinking about it very much, you might just – take everything for granted. And and when we did the presentations at Connect because they like doing those things, I had uh, two or three, you know, three of them, really good panels. I had uh, Casey Logan and Matthew Hansen talking about news and what was fake news and what was all of that kind of stuff. And then, you know, uh, um, fiction-based, um, historical fiction writing, that kind of stuff. But then the very last one, I asked Doug to present as somebody else. And what we did was um, uh, I invited a bunch of artists to exhibit. I, I feel like I need to give you more background before I tell you this. So I would tell every artist that was involved, take something that you know, some facts, um, and start with that reality and then twist it and do something with it. So um, Susan Knight did this uh, freshwater jellyfish. I love talking about that one because that was when the river flooded. Everybody knew the river flooded. Everybody knew. And then she would talk about this jellyfish coming up. And I could talk for half an hour just about this and what Doug Hako did at that first show, et cetera. But the easiest one to talk about for me, one, because it was one of my pieces, but um, are these butterflies. I called them better butterflies. And so I'm going to give you the story. I, t I tell the story a lot, but this is the the main part that's real. Um, CRISPR technology, mm. where they can splice DNA and change it and whatever. So CRISPR's real. There were really scientists that were taking butterfly DNA and using CRISPR on it and then seeing what would happen to the colors of the wings and all that kind of stuff. All this stuff is real. And then at that point, I just simply asked why. 
And then I decided, oh, it's because corporations want to take butterflies, which are really useless little things that just flap around and they're not contributing to capitalist society. But if we could put our logos on the wings and they could be these flying billboards, then they'd be better than these useless things that they are. And of course, people would get upset. Like, that's not better. That's horrifying. I'm like, yes, it is. But, um, and that's the kind of stuff that would happen. And, and I liked using things like butterflies and whatever, because if you went to a natural history museum, that's the kind of stuff you would see insects and bugs and whatever. But yeah, again, you had to use your brain when you were looking at the show and try to decipher what's real, what's not, because um, everything had both. Everything was had some uh, form of reality that it was based on, and then this weird twist. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Tim Guthrie, artist, filmmaker, and professor at Creighton University. What art are you excited about in Omaha these days? Join the conversation on social media or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089, which we may play in one of our upcoming shows. I increasingly think that relation to entertainment and art seems to be more effective at getting people to think critically than the hard stuff that actually has all the dense information in it because they're just not drawn to it. Like I think about David Foster Wallace talking about how he'd much rather watch a diehard marathon than read Wittgenstein. And he's not wrong, right? <laughs> but I mean, it seems like it's kind of a mission for you, right, is to, to get people to engage critically, not just with art, but with the world around them. And art's a way to get them to do that without it feeling like eating vegetables. <laughs> Again, I love that you're giving me such noble reasons for doing the things. Like, and I think I'm, I'm sometimes doing things just because I think it's funny. Like, um, you know, a, a project you may or may not know about. I printed a bunch of barf bags and I would leave them on planes. It was just super juvenile. Um, but it was entertaining to me. <laughs> and somebody told me once, you know, if, if you like something or you're entertained, by, or even collectors, if you collect something, collect something you like, don't collect it because you think somebody else can afford to buy it from you later and you're going to make a profit or just, or music, you buying music, you know, what do you like? Don't buy it because you think whatever. Um, and I think that's kind of the way I approach art. It's like, I don't really care if people like it. Um, I, and more frustrated, not whether they like it or hate it, but whether they got anything out of it. Um, and if I miss the mark, I talk to design students about this. If you miss the mark and they come out with a, something totally different than what you intended, you can't blame them for that. You're the one that has control over that message and how you're presenting and all of that kind of stuff. So that's where I would get frustrated. think, oh, you know, I had this intent and people didn't get it. That's, again, not their fault. That was my fault. So I had to think. It's like the guy I was just talking about in Reno, Nevada. He's like, well, show me, you know. Okay, that hadn't crossed my mind that you wanted proof to what I'm showing. So I should provide that. Proof doesn't always help that much, though. <laughs> oh, no, not at all. I'm going to go ahead and talk about the jellyfish. <laughs> but that was the first version of the Museum of Alternative History. And um, what happened was, and I can't tell you who it was. I Honestly, I'm not just saying this to cover up for somebody. I really don't know who it was. Somebody walked up to me during that exhibit. And we started talking about the jellyfish. And she said, oh, that's really interesting. I, and, and as she was talking about the jellyfish, I realized she thought it was real. So I kind of let her finish and then gently explained, except that it's not real. The jellyfish isn't. And I'm starting to explain it to her a little bit. She kind of interrupts me and says, no, no, it's real. And, you know, it's, and starts talking about it again. And then as she's talking about it, I try to say, well, you know, I'm actually the person who designed the show. I invited some of these artists, that artist, her name's Susan Knight. What she was doing was finally she said something like, no, there was this guy that was talking about it. And he was explaining it to me. And then I realized, oh, Doug Hicko, he, he caught her. So I'm looking around for Doug and I see him and I point at him. I said, that guy over there? And he had a different name, you know, Wilbur or whatever. <laughs> and um, she says, yeah. I said, yeah, his name's actually Doug Hako. He was pulling your leg. 
And then I explained a little bit, kind of the cognitive dissonance, confirmation bias, et cetera. And as I'm explaining this to her, she looks at Doug, she looks at me. I kind of finish explaining. <laughs> Anybody in the radio can't see me doing this, but she kind of scrunches up her face and kind of looks at me and kind of shakes her head really slowly. She said, no, it really <laughs> – I'm like, wait a minute. I mean, it was easy to fool her. It was really hard to explain to her that you'd been conned. And there have been studies done on this. You know, Fox News, whoever, they, they do a story that's false and then the next day they correct it. That correction doesn't change people's mind. It reinforces what they had already thought. They're like, oh, there must be a reason they're trying to change the story now because really that's how conspiracy theories happen. That's where, you know, when we start talking about cognitive dissonance, we can do a whole show just on that, right? We kind of are. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, so, yeah, I, I, I love that you're – giving me this um, explanation that seems more loftier or more noble than it is. But no, it was just me. I just thought it was interesting to do it. And I thought it was fun to screw around with people's perception of something. And I am interested in those subjects, clearly. Um, in fact, I'm actually working on a book now. It's um, about cognitive dissonance and confirmation bias, but it's really about the Museum of Alternative History, things that led up to it. And I'm actually inviting writers to write essays at the end. And it's actually going to go much deeper than I did with the actual show to explain these kind of things and to talk about them. So why, why write it as a book? Um, you know what? <laughs> That's an interesting question <laughs> because actually this whole thing was born um, – a guy named Don McElroy. He was a – he ran for school board in Texas and what he was doing was they were trying to ta change textbooks, not just in Texas. They were distributed to Kansas and Tennessee and a whole bunch of other places where – and this is going to sound offensive, <laughs> but this is literally what they were doing. I might be exaggerating a little bit, but where slavery wasn't slavery. It was job opportunity for immigrants and things like that. I mean completely twisting what the reality was to try to give it a positive spin for whatever their agenda was. And um, when I was in graduate school, I actually thought about doing something kind of like what I did with the museum. But it wasn't until I saw – and not just Don McElroy. I mean, this is still happening. This is all over the place. People are running on for school boards to change what's being taught in classrooms for p political agendas, not because we're educating somebody. It's, it's we want we don't want them to know the truth. We want them to know our version of the truth, right? right? Um, and yeah, so so that idea that it started with textbooks, I always thought it'd be fun to have a book that went with the show and each version of the show, I just didn't have time. The book takes way too much work and I've got a sabbatical coming up and I thought, oh, I don't know if I really want to make art. What am I going to do? But, oh, this is my opportunity to finally do the book. So I'm actually really excited about this. I've never written a book. I've never done this. And it's going to be like a big coffee table style <laughs> art book. It's going to be kind of insane. But um, but I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> so you really have a sabbatical coming up and you were like, I don't know about art. And at this point, I'm, I'm, I'm burnt out on art. Like, what, 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 walk me through that. <laughs> that is that is so much more complicated than I can explain right now in, in, in a single show. I mean, I've done a TED Talk on it. I've done a whole bunch of different discussions about this. And um, – there was a point where art – I got a lot of joy out of making things. And then I, um, most of my friends know this. They're probably the only listening to this show. <laughs> I'm kidding. You probably have a lot of listeners. Yeah, listeners. Don't worry. Don't worry. <laughs> I'm um, but uh, um, I, I was married and my wife um, became ill. And when she became ill, um, I – needed to make more time to be a caretaker. And as I was trying to figure out what to let go of, art was the easiest thing to let go of. I enjoyed doing it, but I didn't have to do it. 
I had to work. We needed a paycheck. We needed insurance. We needed all those kind of things. Um, so I just stopped making art. Um, and then, um, her, then she passed away. After her death, suddenly I had time to get back into the studio again. And that's all I could ever think about. Every time I stepped into the studio was, I can do this because she's gone. And it sucked. It, I no joy in it at all anymore. I tried repeatedly to go back in the studio. I tried different types of projects. I tried. It's one reason that the Museum of Alternative History became what it was, because the first time I did it, she was alive. Um, I stopped doing everything, and I kept trying to think, all right, there's got to be something that I can enjoy, something I can that I can get out of this to, because she wouldn't have wanted that. She wouldn't have wanted me to hate being in the studio. She wouldn't have. And picking back up where I left off with the museum kind of made sense, and it worked. And it was a group thing. I was inviting a lot of people to be involved. So then if I failed, they, you know, they would do cool <laughs> stuff, hopefully. <laughs> but, I, but I did get into it. I did a lot, and I, I created a whole bunch of stuff. But I still struggle with it. I, multiple times I've tried to do things. Um, this is the way I just gave a talk at a Pace. I'm an artist now at, uh, at the Pace Center. And um, I was basically saying – I've tried a handful of times to, to return to art. One return was I thought, you know what? I think I would enjoy just doing portraits of her. That's, it's simple. It's kind of where I started making art was portraits and just pencil. And, and I limited myself, did all that kind of stuff. And I worked on them and I was able to produce some. I, I wasn't as into it as I was hoping I was. It still felt a little bit like work. I thought, all right, here's my chance to kind of get back into the art community again. That was February of 2020, the show went up, and then it got shut down as the pandemic started. And then, <laughs> I'm making raspberries. Uh, so a year passed, and then I finally got the work back. And then I thought about it again and thought, that would, I think, what, two more years passed almost? It's, it's, yeah, it's been about, what, two and a half years, right? Yeah. And then I thought, um, back in uh, April, I thought, all right, this summer is coming up. I'm going to have a sabbatical coming up. I'm going to do this again. Let's try it one more time. I'm going to get into art. This is all going to happen. So I started looking for studio space because I had space that got the building got knocked down and I became one of the pace artists. And I thought, that's what the summer's going to be. I'm going to make art. Then I had open heart surgery. I almost died <laughs> um, this summer. Um, it was it was pretty bad. <laughs> and uh, and I lost my entire summer. All the things that I had planned, I was working on a film, I was doing a whole bunch of things. And then it, it felt like strike two, kind of, you know. Um, and now I get the sabbatical coming up and now I'm really nervous. I'm like, all right, if something, some huge thing just derails everything again, then yeah, maybe I just shouldn't be doing art. Maybe this is a sign that, that I shouldn't be doing this. But, it, um, so I guess all of this is to say it was easier to give up art than it has been to get back into it. It's been a struggle and art was never a struggle for me. Um, that's one of the things that's made it so awkward one of the things that I was enjoying about art was being a part of a community. And when I left the community, I didn't always necessarily, I don't want to say I didn't feel welcome back because there, there's some great people in the community. That's not what it is. But I think some people looked at me and thought, oh, you're not making art. So you're not really an artist. I, I actually did have that said to me, but very specifically, oh, well, true artist doesn't stop making art. 
and kind of accusing me of I was never real. I was a phony or something. It's I was always, never. Yeah. Anybody who starts out the sentence, true artists are. <laughs> I know. Usually and just I, should stop talking probably. <laughs> but then, you know, so some of those artists who are, you know, the, the big artists in the community, they, they would kind of looked at me different. And I, and it, and it felt really, and again, this is probably my lens. I'm feeling weird that I stopped making. I'm trying to get back into it yeah. and I keep failing. And this is all on me. This is all on my shoulders. Nobody else's. Um, but yeah, it's been a struggle to get back into it. I've not enjoyed it very often. I, um, when I do enjoy it, that's what encourages me to keep trying. <laughs> but it's it's been a struggle. It really has. It's it's. I, I don't know how else to explain it than that. It's you know, it's been hard to go back. Well, I'm glad to hear at least you have something in the works uh, <laughs> that it's it's loaded with all your sort of the the preoccupations that seem to frequently uh, lead you to make art. <laughs> right. So I'm curious to see where that goes. Uh, we are – I'd love to keep talking. This is great. We are out of time though. So before I do let you go, where can people go to learn about any of your existing art or any of your upcoming projects? Oh, man. Um, I mean you can go to timguthrie.com. But um, when I first got that um, URL, I had a website that showed a lot of my different things and now – for the past, I don't know, decade or so, I've only used that as a placeholder to redirect you to something. So right now, timguthrie.com um, directs you to the Museum of Alternative History, um, which you can see everybody's stuff. I, well, not everybody's. It was, it was a lot of work. <laughs> I'm trying to get as many people's on the site as we could reasonably put on there without just bogging it down. The book, I'm going to try to get everybody in the book if I can. I, I really want the book to be um, loaded. Um, but yeah, that's probably at the website. <laughs> There's and not it, too many, and it's not going to download your hard drive if people go to it. <laughs> no, that site actually doesn't exist anymore, sadly. <laughs> but um, extraordinary edition, I I loved the idea and I, I loved what it was doing. But yeah, that that was a fail. <laughs> <laughs> well, this was great to get to pick your mind and to hear your thoughts on the world, on art, and uh, you know what you're going through right now. So thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Riverside Chats is a production of KIOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. This show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos, and our artwork is done by Ben Matukowitz. Remember, you can find the backlog of all of these conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today, and please leave us a review. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock.